This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Tennessee's anti-drag law goes into effect next week. The new law threatens to put many drag clubs out of business, and many drag queens could face misdemeanor or felony charges and jail. Similar bills have been proposed in at least 14 other states. Last week, we heard from Bella DeBall, a drag queen who's the show director and host at the largest drag club in Memphis. Today, we talk about the drag scene in New York and the period described by journalist Michael Musto as the drag boom of the 1980s and 90s, when a burgeoning New York club scene was filled with drag performers who perfected the art form. My guest Linda Simpson became part of that scene in the 80s. Musto, who is gay and covered New York's club scene for many years, wrote that much of that 80s and 90s drag scene would, quote, be forgotten were it not for the drag comic who goes by the stage name Linda Simpson, who captured it all with a point-and-shoot camera she kept in her purse. Simpson took some 5,000 photographs of drag performers posing in clubs, on the street, and on gay pride parade floats, unwittingly creating a time capsule of an era when drag queens were the de rigueur jesters and goddesses of the underground, unquote. Simpson collected some of those photos in her book, The Drag Explosion. One of the people she photographed was RuPaul, before he became America's most popular drag queen. Simpson was featured in the documentary Wig about Wigstock, the annual New York drag festival that began in the 80s. She makes her living hosting drag shows and events, including bingo. Linda Simpson, welcome to Fresh Air. Just let's start with what pronouns do you like to use? Well, when I'm in drag, I prefer she and her, and I'm in drag as we speak. And you're home right now, right? Well, I'm going out later, but yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, the you know, Tennessee has this new anti-drag law affecting drag queens and drag clubs in Tennessee, and I'm wondering if you're concerned that that would be a possibility in New York, or do you think that's very unlikely to happen? Well, maybe I'm being naive, but I don't think it will happen in New York. I think what's going to happen is that more of these anti-drag laws probably will be passed and will be sort of like uh, the abortion situation, where some states will have very liberal laws and some will have very restrictive laws. It'll just be kind of a patchwork of legalities across the United States of America. You know, it's ironic that this crackdown on drag culture is happening after RuPaul popularized drag culture and turned drag into an Emmy award-winning competition series on TV. Yeah, that's why I think this whole like battle is kind of ridiculous because you can, you know, ban um, drag from libraries or parks or wherever, but all anyone has to do is turn on the TV or go to the internet. So it's it's sort of a ridiculous battle in many ways. It's a pro. It's 
I think what happened is that uh, the Republicans or some conservative think tank was thinking, hmm, what can we do? And so they created this, like, non-existent problem. I mean, drag queens weren't going out and breaking down doors and forcing people to, you know, see them perform or anything. It, it, I doubt if there were any, you know, complaints to the police or local lawmakers or whatever. It was just, uh, you know, a non-problem. And all of a sudden, it's become an issue because some people decided to, you know, make it uh, a brouhaha. Linda, can you describe your persona as a drag queen? Well, Terry, who you're talking to now is my persona. A very calm, confident, and intelligent woman. And um, <laughs> and um, I... Um, I feel like I don't put on a character necessarily when I do drag. There are some people that do that. Their voices change, their mannerisms change. Uh, you know, they've got a whole different um, biography that they've thought up. I feel like my drag is just kind of an extension of my male self. So I, I of course, use drag to be, you know, more confident and flamboyant and uh, loud, etc. But I'm not, um, I'm not that totally, Linda, my drag persona, is not, is not that divorced, I think, from my male persona. Are you often in your male persona? Yeah, no, 99% of the time or 95% of the time, I'm, you know, just a regular guy or regular gay guy. And then I... I'm an entertainer, so that's when I'm in drag. I used to dress up in drag a lot more just for hanging out, going to the clubs, etc. But, you know, I'm a little bit more <clears throat> mature now, so <laughs> I'm not as prone to getting into drag uh, just to hang out. It's more a work thing for me now. Why did getting older um, change your attitude about how much you wanted to be in drag? Well, some of drag is uncomfortable, to tell you the truth. I mean, being in heels on the lawn. Most women can tell you that. <laughs> well, thank you. And for drag queens, it's even a little bit more exaggerated with the wigs and the waist cinchers and, you know. But also, like, you know, the nightlife scene um, was, you know, it was very late. And, um, I, you know, I had a blast in my, you know, formative years when I was hanging out. But that's not necessarily my lifestyle anymore. And, uh, you know, it takes me a little longer to recover after a big night out. I mean, I'm not saying I don't whoop it up now and then, but it is not such a normal part of my life now. How has your um, wardrobe changed, your drag wardrobe changed over time? Well, I guess, um, you know, when I started, I was pretty poor. So most of my clothes were from thrift stores or kind of uh, chain stores, you know, cheap chain stores. Um, now, I do work with um, a, a dressmaker who makes most of my clothes. Uh, but uh, actually, it's easier now to be a drag queen because there's a lot more resources for drag, including makeup and wigs, etc., so back in, you know, the 80s, you really had to kind of like hunt around for like big shoes, for instance, or nice wigs, etc., um, or makeup that was, you know, applicable for drag. So it's, it's easier now in many ways. There's many, many more resources. Can you describe your signature style? Well, this, again, it shows, you know, the generation of drag that I came up with. 
I started in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, those were my formative drag years. And our style back then, there was kind of a newer generation of drag that was becoming more apparent then. And ours was, our style was to look kind of more girly. I think our role models were like the supermodels that were reigning at that point or actresses. And um, so the point was to look kind of girly and, you know, sexy, et cetera. Um, drag now, and I've kind of, you know, kept that same style. Drag now is much more exaggerated. I think back in our day, we wanted to look kind of girly. Now drag queens want to look like drag queens. And there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of like a list of things that you have to do. Like, you know, you've got to have the contoured um, face. You know, you have to have your eyebrows a certain way. You've got to have, you know, hip padding that, uh, you know, measures up to whatever is, uh, you know, in style right now. So drag now has become, it's in a way, it's become a little more uniform. To me, I have a hard time telling some of even the young drag queens apart, honestly, because there is sort of this uniform look. But a lot of the queens do it very well, too. A lot of the queens are very interesting looking, and there's a lot of imaginative uh, looks. How did you start taking pictures of drag performers Pictures that ended up having a lot of historical significance, which I don't think you were thinking about when you started doing this. No, I'm back then, as mentioned, late 80s, you know, 90s, I carried around a camera, and that was kind of an unusual thing to do back then. You know, it's not like today where people all have cell phones and we're like, you know, documenting each and every moment. So um, I just, I'm not quite sure why I did it. I don't know what my motivation was other than just to take photos. I'm not a photographer. I don't know the first thing about techniques. But um, I just ended up taking a lot of photos. I think part of it was because I was in such an interesting scene that I wanted to take photos of my friends and the people I was hanging out with. So I really did amass like this really big collection of photos And, um, but it was all kind of accidental. I wasn't trying to, you know, uh, make an archive or, or, you know, document a scene necessarily. But after I was divorced from this uh, particular scene, um, I started uh, uh, realizing that I really had kind of, you know, made an interesting time capsule. Divorced from this particular scene. Can you expand on that? Time-wise, I mean, like about eight years ago, I realized after looking through my photos that they were a very interesting history of when I started drag. And that was a particularly momentous time in drag, too, because drag um, from like the late 80s to the mid-90s um, emerged from being kind of an underground art form into this pop sensation. It was it became a mainstream sensation. And so I put together this slideshow this about eight years ago called The Drag Explosion, and it documents this time with my photos. So what made the scene that you documented unique? Well, it was the first time really that drag was kind of broke into showbiz like, as a whole. Like, there had been, like, you know, individual performers like Divine or the Warhol superstars that had become, 
you know, pop sensations in their own ways. But, um, but what happened is that, at least according to my slideshow, is that um, drag was big on the New York scene, on the New York nightlife scene, and it became discovered by the media. And actually, it was when RuPaul became a star with her, uh, with her hit single, Supermodel, in 1992, that everybody wanted drag. Like, the media came running. They wanted to know about this drag scene that Ru had emerged from. And um, pop culture then jumped on the bandwagon, too. So every, you know, daytime talk show wanted drag. There were a million um, magazine and newspaper articles. Drag queens were working the runways. We were in music videos, movies, TV shows. It really was, as mentioned, a drag explosion. This didn't last because in the mid-90s, there were a couple of things that happened. The main one was that the powers that be just decided that drag was a trend and uh, they, uh, you know, uh, decreed that drag was, you know, no longer popular. And that was, you know, kind of the way things went back then. And um, also in New York, the Giuliani administration was really cracking down on the nightlife and that really kind of like hurt the drag scene very much, especially in terms of, you know, work and visibility. So it was, um, you know, a glorious era that did not last. And it was only like when RuPaul, you know, started her um, show, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race, like I can't remember what year, but like in the early 2000s, the drag really started, you know, emerging again as a powerful force. So what are your thoughts about RuPaul and and her fame and the the attention she brought to the whole drag scene. I don't, um, I, well, Rue, of course, is a phenomena. And I knew Rue when she was, you know, basically homeless and was, you know, a struggling performer. So the heights of success that Rue has managed is, you know, extremely admirable and, you know, fascinating. And also what I find really amazing, too, is that I don't think there's any other genre of showbiz that has been dominated by one person so much. I mean, as popular as drag has become, there isn't any other drag queen still that compares to RuPaul. And so Ru, for you know several decades, has been the shining star of her particular scene. So it's really amazing. So um, at the height of the drag explosion when it was both popular among like people who were already involved with the drag scene, but also it became more part of mainstream culture. How did that change your life? Um, Well, it was very interesting. It was kind of heady because all of a sudden I, you know, and many other people went from, you know, working at gay bars at 1 a.m. to being on, you know, TV talk shows, nationally broadcast TV talk shows. This was the era of uh, the TV talk, when TV talk shows, daytime TV talk shows were a craze. You know, the Phil Donahue era where you had like 10 million people that were trying to um, copy that format. 
So they all wanted sensational subjects. So drag queens were brought out on these programs, and they also paid. And so we all of a sudden were being beamed into people's living rooms all across America. And also, um, it really just, there was just this general interest in drag. So there were lots of jobs, um, especially on the nightlife. And um, everyone, I think, well, a lot of people at least started like, you know, polishing their resumes because all of a sudden there were auditions to go to and um, all these opportunities that really had never been afforded drag queens before. But um, what also I should mention, I think, is that this drag scene that was bubbling up like in the 80s was very new. It was mostly in the East Village and it was really new um, and kind of radical compared to what had come before. At that point, like 80s, drag was very out. It was considered kind of like dusty and old-fashioned, even in the gay community. No one really wanted drag. Wait, and are you talking about the era where a lot of drag was impersonating Carol Channing? Or <laughs> Exactly. It was kind of old school and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, and that stuff can be great, but it didn't really, I think, speak to modern youth. And so what was happening in the East Village was that these, uh, you know, performance artists and artists and, um, you know, just anybody was uh, was embracing this new kind, newfangled kind of drag where it wasn't polished necessarily, but it was just sort of individualistic and this like, you know, kind of almost punk expression. And so this was, you know, like drag was so out that it was in, um, in the East Village. And that was a very, you know, kind of like nothing like that was going on anywhere else in the world. It was this new type of drag that was being invented. Linda, how do you think the um, uh, the drag explosion coincided or didn't coincide with the AIDS epidemic? Oh, well, it coincided very much. I mean, the crisis, the AIDS crisis, you know, was at its peak during the late 80s to, you know, the mid or to the early 90s at least. So um, this was all going kind of hand in hand. So, you know, it was very exciting for me to be involved with this drag sing. But at the same time, it was, you know, an extremely dark era because AIDS, uh, you know, clouded everything. And then there was this, you know, horrible um, homophobic um, wave that was going on um, across America, too. So how do you think... AIDS affected the tone of performances, if if at all? I think that a lot of the reason that the drag scene was so popular in the, you know, in that late 80s to mid-90s period was that um, it provided an escape. And I think that's why nightlife back then was so wild, too. It was a very dark period, and people needed to be entertained so I think of those times, uh, the drag shows back then, as sort of being U- like those USO shows, you know, those old-fashioned shows with like Bob Hope and like, you know. Like during World War II. When- exactly. It was kind of like, you know, a way to rally the troops and like, you know, just infuse some uh, good feelings among the masses. And so I think that that was... Um, 
you know, very helpful for a lot of people to have these drag queens. And also back then, you know, it was a very closeted era. You know, there weren't many celebrities or, you know, barely any that uh, were out. So I think drag queens kind of like fulfilled this role of like, you know, visible stars that were willing to be proud and out. And so I think that was encouraging also. What were your performances like back then? Well, interestingly, I'm not very musically inclined. So I really don't lip sync or sing. I'm more of an MC um, or a personality. So I produced a lot of stuff too. I was a little behind the scenes with a lot of things. I had an underground magazine called My Comrade. Uh, I threw parties, I threw events. And so I was a little bit, uh, you know, a little more difficult to classify because I wasn't, you know, your typical performer. My guest is Linda Simpson, who was part of New York's drag scene in the 80s and 90s, which she documented in over 5,000 photos. She now hosts drag shows and events. We'll talk more after a break. And we'll listen back to an excerpt of my interview with Frank Griswold, the Episcopal bishop who presided over the ordination and consecration of the first openly gay Episcopal bishop. Bishop Griswold died earlier this month at the age of 85. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. Let's get back to my interview with Linda Simpson, who documented New York's drag scene in the 80s and 90s in over 5,000 photos. She was part of that scene and now hosts drag shows and events. How did you start dressing in drag, and what did it mean to you when you started? Well, I started um, observing drag first. As I mentioned, the East Village drag scene was really um, vibrant at that time. So I thought it was just very amusing and very creative. And I became friendly with some of the, you know, uh, personalities. And uh, I just decided to join the fray also. And for me, drag was very liberating. I had been shamed, I think, for most of my life for being feminine. And all of a sudden, I was allowed to be as feminine as I wanted. And, uh, and you know, people admired me for that, too. And it just also gave me a sense of boldness that I don't think I had. All of a sudden, I was in drag, and I could, you know, walk into a room and talk to anybody and, uh, you know, be flirty and fun and fabulous. And so I just found the whole experience very exhilarating. And I think my story is very common. I think a lot of drag queens will tell you the same thing. Your, your father was a minister. Did he have a, a church where he was a minister? 
My father, yes, definitely. The church was a big part of my upbringing. I wasn't raised in an evangelical or a strict upbringing, but it was, uh, you know, our life centered around the church. And honestly, to tell you the truth, in some ways, I followed my father's footsteps because my father would wear like, you know, kind of a garment that was sort of gown-like. And so, uh, you know, preaching in front of congregations, and I'm kind of doing the same, you know, <laughs> all dressed up in gownish like outfits, preaching to whatever congregation might be in front of me. But since he was a minister with a church, I imagine he was supposed to be a role model. Were you supposed to be like a role model child, like well-behaved and very church-going? I didn't feel that pressure. I felt more kind of the pressure of just um, growing up gay in a heteronormative society in general. So it made me sort of a skeptic, a little bit of a cynic as a child. Like I rejected religion um, from an early age, or at least I knew that it wasn't, you know, my cup of tea. But I, I think it was all kind of muddled. I just saw, I, I didn't feel, I felt like, you know, shame, ashamed perhaps of being gay. But I, at the same time, I knew it was, you know, fine and dandy. And so I kind of like was skeptical of anything uh, from authorities. So it made me sort of an independent, free-thinking person, um, but not without its, you know, bumps and kind of pains and distancing from people. What was your father's reaction to you rejecting the church and being, as you described it, a feminine boy? Well, my rejection of the church wasn't dramatic. I didn't, you know, march down the sign, I marched down the streets with, you know, God is dead signs or anything. But um, I just kind of gradually, um, you know, moved away from going to church or anything like that. So I think it was probably kind of evident that I wasn't, you know, a believer. Um, I don't. I really wasn't able to have this conversation with my dad. Um, because he um, got early um, onset Alzheimer's in his 50s. So um, there were a lot of conversations with my father that I would have liked to have had. It's a big regret that I didn't kind of like talk to him about this stuff earlier. One of the things that's changed since you became a drag performer is the language that we use to describe gender nonconforming people. And can you talk a little bit about the changes you've seen in terms of language? Well, with drag, I do remember, you know, the early days, some people referring to me as he when I was in drag, and they would kind of rile me up. I mean, I was thinking, I'm obviously presenting myself as, you know, female-ish. Why wouldn't you call me by my uh, proper pronoun? And so I can kind of like be sympathetic now to people and their pronoun issues. But honestly... I'm old school, and I find a lot of the gender nonconformity stuff a little bit overwrought and a little bit silly. Um, I think that back in our days, there were always people that were um, gender fluid. We used, I think the term that we used more was androgynous. And I think people, uh, you know, for the most part, were perfectly fine with that. I'm sure there were some people that, you know, prefer, would have wished that there was like better language to describe themselves. But I think a lot of the the gender fluidity craze 
is a little bit, like I said, a little overwrought. And, um, but that's me speaking as an older person too. So I don't want to sound like an old fuddy-duddy. And I'm certainly going to call somebody whatever pronouns they prefer. But um, I think sometimes people get a little bit uh, riled up over this um, when it's not, you know, that an important issue, as some people make it out to be. Describe the kind of uh, hosting or performances you've been doing lately. Well, what has happened is, you know, for the last, um, gosh, about 20 years, I've really uh, become a game show hostess. So my medium is bingo. And so I host bingos and I have several regular gigs in New York City. And then I do parties too. Also during COVID, uh, there was a kind of a silver lining for me work-wise. I started doing virtual bingos and that was proved to be really popular. And I still do those for parties now. And um, so, uh, so that's kind of my shtick. And it's worked out well, actually, because... These are usually early evening gigs and I, you know, don't have to be out till 4 a.m. anymore. And uh, and I enjoy it. I love it. Um, you know, people enjoy winning prizes and I'm making people happy. And it's a chance for me to interact with a lot of people, including a much younger audience than me in general. So it just I, I feel like it keeps me fresh. Linda Simpson, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. Tara, I've had a blast. Your probing questions have got me thinking. Linda Simpson hosts drag shows and events in New York. Some of her thousands of photos are collected in her book, The Drag Explosion. Tennessee's anti-drag law goes into effect April 1st, which is next week. After we take a short break, we remember Bishop Frank Griswold. During his nine-year term as head of the U.S. Episcopal Church, he consecrated and ordained the first openly gay bishop in the church. Bishop Griswold died earlier this month. He was 85. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air. When Gene Robinson became the first openly gay bishop of the U.S. Episcopal Church in 2003, it was Bishop Frank T. Griswold who presided over Robinson's ordination and consecration. Griswold was then the head of the Episcopal Church in America. His support of Robinson and of the ordination of women made him a controversial figure in the U.S. Episcopal Church and the worldwide Anglican Church, which the Episcopal Church is part of. 
Bishop Griswold died March 5th at the age of 85. We're going to listen back to an excerpt of the interview I recorded with him in 2006, when the worldwide Anglican Church was on the verge of splitting apart over these and other issues. When we spoke, he was just a few months away from completing his nine-year tenure. Bishop Griswold opposed schism in the church, and it was avoided. When his term ended, he was succeeded by a woman, Catherine Jefferts Shorey. In 2009, the Episcopal Church officially removed gender and sexual orientation as barriers to the election of bishop. When Griswold was a priest in Pennsylvania, he helped revise the Book of Common Prayer, the church's main text. Here's an excerpt of our interview. How has the controversy over gay bishops affected your relationship with other bishops? I understand some bishops declined to take communion with you, for example. I would say that, um, yeah, some bishops um, probably see me as the incarnation of evil. Few, but I think some probably do. And others uh, have seen me, uh, at least until the general convention, as a sort of a, a hero. And I think, I pray that I'm neither. I hope in some way that I am faithful to the complexities of trying to be a faithful person and a leader in a world in which uh, there are so many divergences and diversities and contrary points of view. Sorting and sifting all that and trying to find what is God's larger purpose is certainly uh, where I've put my best energies over these years. When Bishop Robinson was uh, ordained, and became the first openly gay Episcopal bishop. To the ordination ceremony, you wore a flak jacket, as I believe did he. Did you say to yourself, what is this world coming to, that I have to wear a flak jacket to well, be part of frankly, the ceremony? Well, quite frankly, I was more um, amused than um, scared by that. Uh, I went along with it because that's what I was asked to do. And I also thought that if in, indeed something did occur, which I felt was completely unlikely, um, it would have been foolish for me not to have taken that, that step to, to protect myself. Being a bishop, do people assume that y- you have a, a special connection to God and that, um, that being a bishop just inherently brings you closer to God or as a sign that you already were closer to God? The wonderful paradox of being a bishop, at least in the Anglican tradition, is the more elaborate your title becomes and the more magnificent the vesture you put on, the more you are stripped inwardly and the more you have to confront your own interior poverty. And in the midst of that discovery, you discover your companionship with Christ in a whole new and much deeper way. So I would say... My own faith as a Christian has deepened tremendously because uh, I'm shot at from a number of directions and uh, all sorts of projections are thrust upon me. You you must do this, you must do that, or a, a good bishop does this, and if you want to be a good bishop, you must do this, those sorts of things. And so you ultimately have to sort of find your grounding beyond the uh, externals of the institution and beyond the perceived grandiosity of your own office. If you take yourself too seriously, I think you are in great danger. Fortunately, I've been given, uh, what would I say, 
uh, insight into the divine sense of humor and can apply it to myself. Um, it seems to me from the outside that being a bishop would probably immerse you in the power politics and administrative work of religion. And that can sometimes not be the most spiritual place to be, power politics and, and, and administration. So are there things you have to be wary of when you're a bishop? I think you have to be wary of taking yourself too seriously. I think you have to stay rooted and grounded in an active and authentic faith life that is beyond the institution. One thing I do every year, I go off for a 10-day retreat with a wonderful Jesuit who, though blind, can see better than any sighted person I know, and he can see right into Frank Griswold and isn't interested in, in Frank Griswold as bishop, and that is very, very helpful to me. And uh, my daily patterns of prayer and spiritual direction occasionally with a, a wise counselor uh, keep me from becoming, what would I say, the victim of the institution. What are your vestments as a bishop? Well, there's a hat, a pointed hat called a mitre, and uh, then you carry a staff, uh, which is called a crozier, or since I'm the presiding bishop and primate, it's a primatial cross, but it's the same idea. And, you know, there are various uh, overgarments called copes and chasubles that you put on. So you can stand in front of a mirror and fully dressed and feel quite self-important if you forget that underneath it you are simply a human being trying as best you can to respond to the motions of the spirit and trying to be faithful to what God has placed before you. Does putting on those vestments give you, you the sense of um, either spirituality or theater uh, that you feel uh, you need or that is helpful in, in, in conducting a service? I think in the midst of uh, conducting a service, I feel very much that I am an instrument of God. Uh, that also means that I'm aware of myself as myself, and I'm also aware that the gestures and movements all are a form of punctuation and underscoring the larger purpose of what I'm doing. So I take, I take seriously what you might call the theatrical a dimension of it as well. Uh, I love theater, and I don't mean that in a No, no, I know, I know you don't. <laughs> I know you don't, but for some people to say that there's theater associated with this would sound uh, demeaning, uh, but, but how you move liturgically, you know, how you go down an aisle, all that sort of thing, is part of how you serve the larger mystery. How did your parents practice religion when you were growing up? What was, what was the, the, the style of religion that you were brought up with? I was br brought up in what I would call cultural Episcopalianism. I was baptized on uh, the 1st of uh, January, 1938, which would have been my grandfather's 100th birthday – that was the reason for the day being chosen, though it also turned out to be a holy day, but that was incidental. And I never went near a church except for an occasional Christmas pageant when my mother felt guilty around Christmas time until I was sent away in the eighth grade to an Episcopal boarding school in New Hampshire. And there I was in the choir and fascinated by the liturgy and the complexity of uh, the rites of the church, and there were seven priests on the faculty who took an interest in me. And so I, in a very uh, organic way, 
simply evolved into a person of faith. And by the end of my uh, time at that school, it was clear to me that I wanted to be ordained. And this was supported by several of the clergy. Did you feel called to be a priest? And if so, would you describe what that means to you? My call uh, happened in a very funny way. Um, My roommate at the boarding school I mentioned came back one Sunday afternoon from a visit to one of the clergy, fell on his bed roaring with laughter and pointed at me and said, uh, Father Jones says you should be a priest. And the idea was so shocking and yet fascinating that it sort of stayed with me and uh, developed over time. And I think sometimes uh, a sense of vocation overtakes you in a way that surprises you. And my sense of vocation has changed tremendously over the years. I mean, I saw myself uh, as this sort of perfect priest uh, when I was still in school and college. And certainly the uh, vicissitudes of actually living the life of a priest in several congregations and then life as a bishop has uh, stretched and changed my, my sense of vocation. Uh, but I feel very much uh, that it's, it's a right thing for me to have undertaken and I feel very much at peace with it. Is there anything that you really hoped to accomplish in your tenure as presiding bishop of the U.S.? Episcopal Church that you feel like you wish you had, but you're not going to be able to do it? What I've hoped to do, and only time will tell, is keep people with differing points of view together in one larger conversation to the point where they can recognize Christ in one another and having done so, ask the question, how can we be about mission together? How can we serve this broken, bleeding world. Thank you very much for talking with us. But thank you very much. I've very much enjoyed this. My interview with Bishop Frank Griswold was recorded in 2006. He died March 5th at the age of 85. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. In the new Netflix series, The Night Agent, Gabriel Basso plays a young FBI agent stuck in a dead-end job who suddenly finds himself in the middle of a huge conspiracy. Our critic at large, John Power, says that its story is like a cross between a paranoid thriller from the 70s and a twisty TV show like 24. We all have certain kinds of stories we're suckers for. Me, I'm hooked on thrillers whose heroes get caught up in treacherous political shenanigans. You know, the attempted military coup in Seven Days in May. 
the Assassination Corporation in the Parallax view, or the many delirious intrigues that fueled Homeland. Put a scenario like that in front of me, and even if it's badly done, I'll plow through the whole darn thing. Naturally, I leapt to watch The Night Agent, a new Netflix show about a young FBI agent who stumbles on a conspiracy more Byzantine than he could ever have imagined. Adapted from Matthew Quirk's novel by series creator Sean Ryan, who previously did The Shield, among others, this bustling ten-parter gets better as it goes along. It's fun watching its hero weave through a landscape marked by betrayal, murder, kidnapping, terror attacks, hairpin twists, harebrained schemes, and, of course, threats to the free world as we know it. Gabriel Basso stars as FBI agent Peter Sutherland, whose career is in trouble. Not only was his dad a disgraced G-man, his son thinks unfairly, Peter just missed stopping a terrorist bombing in D.C., prompting online trolls to say he was actually involved. His career is saved by presidential aide Diane Farr, played by a surprisingly gray-haired Hong Chao. Farr puts him to work at the night action desk in the White House basement, where he monitors a hotline that never gets any calls. Then one night, the phone rings. Two agents are in danger. Before you can say three days of the condor, Peter is awash in troublesome characters, including nutso hitmen, slippery politicos, the vice president's alienated daughter, and the head of a private military group whose very haircut seems sinister. Inevitably, Peter finds a plucky love interest, computer whiz Rose Larkin, played by Lucian Buchanan. It was Rose who made that late-night call to the night action desk, as assassins were murdering her secret agent aunt and uncle. Peter and Rose go on the run, seeking to unravel a conspiracy that has them in its crosshairs. Here, Peter talks to presidential aide Farr, who thinks that Peter's FBI boss, named Hawkins, may be hiding something from them about the murder. She wants Peter to dig into what was happening with those murdered spies. Okay, what do, what do you want me to look for? A reason why they were targeted, any connections Hawkins isn't telling us about? Peter, look, you've been a good soldier done everything I've asked in night action. I know you're capable of more. You want to do more. Now I'm asking for more. We're wading into very murky waters here. Are you ready to do whatever it takes to get to the bottom of this muck? To keep Rose Larkin safe? Absolutely. Good. The last 12 months I've been training you for something I wasn't sure what for. But now we know. It's this. Now, people have always believed in conspiracies. In America, we had the Red Scare of the 50s, the Kennedy assassination theories of the 60s, on up to today's theories about stolen elections and kids being trafficked out of pizza parlors. Conspiracies, real and delusional, make for juicy material. And with some imagination, you can do a lot with it. You can spoof it the way the Manchurian candidates sent up anti-communist frenzy. You can tell the upbeat tale of reporters exposing the truth about Watergate in All the President's Men. Or you can follow the lead of John le Carré, who used the spy novel to suggest that the British ruling elite has actually betrayed Britain. Alas, like most so-called political thrillers, the recent Apple TV Plus series Liaison is another example, the night agent never rises above formula. Although there are lots of scenes in the White House, where of course villainy lurks, the series has no interest in politics, left or right. In keeping with our conspiracy-mad moment, it's shot through with a reflexive cynicism about those in power. And it tacitly promotes the idea that the world can only be saved by a few honest individuals prepared to disobey authority and do what needs to be done. 
Then again, nobody turns on a Netflix thriller for political analysis, much less wisdom. We want a familiar kind of excitement, and this the night agent does provide. Although its script could be wittier, the show is very well acted. I got a kick out of the toxic relationship between the spineless Veep and the daughter who despises him. And there's real feeling in the bickering byplay between D.B. Woodside and Fola Evans-Akimbola as secret service agents with warring approaches to their work. As for our hero, I appreciated Basso's patriotic earnestness as Peter. It spoke to my inner Jack Ryan. And that was enough to keep me watching happily until the very end. But then, as I told you up front, when it comes to political thrillers, I'm an easy mark. John Powers reviewed The Night Agent, the new series streaming on Netflix. If you'd like to catch up on fresh air interviews you missed, like this week's interview with Ari Shapiro, a host of All Things Considered, who's written a new memoir, or actor Billy Crudup, or journalist Matt Desmond, whose new book is about why there's so much poverty in America and how affluent Americans benefit from poverty in ways they should be aware of, check out our podcast. You'll find lots of fresh air interviews. And if you want to learn more about how we put the show together and learn more about our producers and what they're paying attention to, subscribe to our free newsletter. You'll find the link on our website, freshair.npr.org. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Sherrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Chaloner directed today's show. I'm Terry Gross. Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.